Hey, welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. Uh, Going to get into the episode, it's a little bit longer one today, but just want to let you know about a few things. First of all, I am lining up some actual guests with my computer dying and just being busy at work uh, and busy with the family. I've been a little bit behind, so if you're feeling shortchanged, I apologize, but you'll get over it. Also, uh, the episode we are going to air today is kind of a re-release slash full release of a conversation I had over the summer with Dan White Jr. and his mostly revolving around his book Love Over Fear. Um, I put out an abbreviated version before. This version you're going to hear today was the full version that the patrons of the Thinking Out Loud podcast heard. So you're going to hear that full uh, conversation. The reason why I chose this one to release today was just because of uh, the recent uh, happenings, if you will, at the National Prayer Breakfast where uh, there was a speaker who uh, was invited to come and to speak and he talked a lot about loving your enemies across political lines and uh, our our president came up afterwards and said, I disagree, and then did uh, one of the things he does best, which is hate on his political enemies. So I thought this was timely that Dan's book, Love Over Fear, is as timely and as important and as pressing uh, as it ever was and as we head into this 2020 election uh, especially for those of you who are christians i think this word and uh, this book is important so check it out uh again that's love over fear i will link to that in the show notes i'll also link to uh, an email a little write-up that uh, i kind of came across uh, from david french who talks about how as christians we cannot um, we are called to love our enemies but Part of that means that we can't hire someone to hate our enemies for us. Uh, And so I'll let you read it. I thought it was really well written. Um, And yeah, so that'll be in the show notes as well. Check that out and enjoy this episode, this re-released episode of Thinking Out Loud with Dan White Jr. Welcome to the Patreon edition of the Thinking Out Loud podcast. As always, I am your host, Dave Hallahan. Thank you for being a patron of the Thinking Out Loud podcast. We have a special treat for you today. Dan White Jr. is joining us to discuss his book, Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. As I re-listened to this conversation i absolutely loved it and i'll only tell you this my patreon supporters this is probably my favorite interview that i've done so far in season two but you're gonna love it tons to dig into to think through Uh, but you can follow dan white at dan white jr on twitter you can check out his website danwhitejr.com and the book actually has its own website as well loveoverfearproject.com but my conversation with him today is over 50 minutes long again i know you're gonna love it dan was really easy to talk to we got along really great that reflects in the conversation tons to talk about tons to listen to for you so 
I won't make you wait any longer. You're paying enough money as it is. So here's my conversation with Dan White Jr. All right. Dan White Jr. is here today to join us on the Thinking Out Loud podcast. Welcome, Dan. Glad to have you. Well, it's great to be with you, man. And uh, you guys can uh, follow Dan White on Twitter, Dan at Dan White Jr. Uh, Dan is here mostly to talk about the book that he wrote recently, uh, Love Over Fear. And I don't know why, Dan, and I might be the only one who has this problem, but whenever I've said the title of your book, I want to say fear over love <laughs> instead of love over fear. That's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not a good thing. And it, maybe it's like a, a Freudian slip and right. it's it's why I need this book there, in my life. There you because go, man. <laughs> it's so natural to say fear over love for me. But we'll we'll jump into talking about some of that book in a in a minute here. But other than writing books, you're involved in uh, like the missional church movement, uh, and you work with an organization called V3. What exactly do you do there? What does V3 do? What are they about? Mm. Yeah, um, a few years ago, um, a friend of mine, uh, J.R. Woodward. Uh, who had planted a network of missional communities in L.A. Uh, both of us uh, sensed that there was a growing groundswell of planters and practitioners who wanted to reimagine how to be the church uh, in, a, mm. in an old but new way. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of theology. There's a lot of writing and in, in this area, but very little around practice, um, on the ground practice. And so mm. we realized that if the, the church as a movement, uh, specifically in a missional incarnational form was going to survive and thrive, then people needed to be retrained and rediscipled in how to do it. <clears throat> Right. Same way that most of us who've led in traditional churches, we've been trained in how to preach, in how to uh, launch events, and um, there's a whole new skill set and whole new uh, muscles that we need to learn in how to uh, start missional churches. So a few years back, we started a training a cohort approach where we gather planters for um, an entire year, really an eight-month journey. Um, and now, you know, fast forward to where we're at now, we... Um, We've trained 200 planters, and uh, every okay. single week, uh, uh, this year we'll probably have about 50 in training, um, and they uh -huh. will go through four things specifically, uh, learning about how to start tight-knit community, uh, life-forming discipleship, boundary-crossing mission, and locally-rooted presence. And so they learn uh, skills and uh, tools, and then there's deep reflection and then deep accountability to practice. And uh, this is happening all over the country. Um, and we start our cohort cohort out with a uh, an intensive called the Praxis Gathering. Um, that's in Philly. And so all of us assemble together. We'll have about 200 this year. And then at the end of the year, okay. um, so they're meeting all year, every single week with a coach partnered up in groups of about six to eight. And then at the end of the year, we have a self-care retreat in Malibu, <laughs> which is huh, nice. Yeah. Nice. And this is really about, we, we use the Enneagram and we use a lot of silence and, and even some fun to relax 
and to yeah. uh, seek health emotionally. And so uh, that's the nature of what we do. And uh, okay. right now, actually, not to make a sales pitch, but we're accepting um, applications if you want to join a cohort, if anybody does, okay. any of your listeners. But um, there's a real... Well, maybe real tell us more about Malibu. and some <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. So it's, yeah. it's a fun journey. And I, I yeah. you know, where people are consistently talking about how bad a shape the church is in um i actually have a different vantage point i mean honestly chris christendom is collapsing but um yeah. i get a i get an on the ground local view of um this mustard seed mustard seed kingdom outbreak that's mm. happening um where people are are not giving up on the church they're just giving up on some of the forums that um haven't led people into mission yeah. and into deeper community so there's that's actually a really exciting yeah um space to be in yeah that's that's awesome and uh, i definitely I, I you know i work at a traditional church here but i definitely have a heart for that, that missional movement and just that yeah. idea of doing church that way i saw recently yeah. um i think it was someone quoting kierkegaard but he said that mm. when uh when christianity gains power it ceases to be christian and wow. uh, yeah. when you talk about you know people have frustration with the the church or with christendom i think part of that is because especially here in in america that the church has had power that christianity has and really been seeking right. and fighting for power um, oh yeah and when you do that the the mission of christ be, looks a lot yes. less like the mission of Christ. <laughs> right, and, right. Yes. And so people are frustrated with that, but with a missional yeah. movement, you can get back to what Jesus has actually called us to. Yeah, that's the intent to to find there's no perfect form of church and there's no perfect movement, but right. it really is this it's it's a seeking to recover the the minimalistic mm. beauty of being um, Jesus followers on behalf of God in the world. And yeah. so uh, we're seeing men, women, black, white, Hispanic, Latin, all uh, denominations across the board right now who are coming out of the church industrial complex. And, and that's the term we use kind of to, you know, where it has so much power. They're coming yeah. out of that and they're exploring uh, a new way of being the body of Christ. And um, so I, th I, I have hope that we're going to we're going to see in the next 10, 20 years uh, this. Uh, this grassroots um, life happening uh, in, in in the people of God. So it's fun time. Yeah. You mentioned you work in a traditional church, and that's yeah. uh, that's something I have a lot of experience with. And so we've we've actually just in the last two years, um, we have quite a few pastors that have uh, been eager to bring in this kind of DNA into their existing church, just like yours. Right. And, we launched a remissioning cohort, which okay. is, um, it's the same kind of journey, but you, but instead of blowing up your congregation <laughs> and starting <laughs> over, uh, yeah. you are, you're, 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 you are, you're taking on a journey to really, uh, audit the resources God has already given you in your existing traditional church yeah, and yeah. then start making steps towards remissioning. And how does, how do I start calling people who are used to this uh, environment of uh, just come and hear a sermon and participate in small groups and move out of that into a real um, on-the-ground work of mission? So that's been a fun journey in the last two years. We're seeing the revitalization of, um, of, of churches as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll, I'll, def I'll 
look into that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, it, wasn't, I mean, it wasn't necessarily a sales pitch. Yeah, for you, no, but just uh, just another touch point of what's no. But happening. that's cool that that you guys are doing that because you know one of my questions was going to be like, what are some? Not everyone's going to be called to to do this or equipped or even does have the desire to be coached so that they are equipped to start something like this. But right. if they're involved in some sort of body of believers, whatever that church looks like for them, yeah. but they have a heart for, you know, actually being on the mission of God, kind of getting yep. out of the pews and yep. leaving spectator Christianity and actually yep. doing yes. what God has called them to do. What are some steps, practical steps that they could take yeah. in their life? Yeah, that's good. We're all, I mean, we're all, uh, all of us who are leading, uh, in some capacity as practitioners within Christianity, we all have different, uh, context and different resources that God has given us. And we have to start with what we have instead of being, um, instead of being idealistic and, and saying, burn it all down, <laughs> Right. you know, we have to, we have to embrace where God has us and find a way to, to stretch stretch each other into the future and so yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I, all of that is or tied up in all of that is being comfortable with process yes because yes. you know whether you are blowing up a congregation or like you're starting from zero and trying to start this missional movement it's not going to take off tomorrow right and right if you have a church of 300 that has kind of grown complacent or a church mm. of thousands that have has grown yeah. complacent yeah. and you want to do something about that it's not going to happen next week yeah. and so you know we have to rethink what habits we have yes. and, and how we're engaging with scripture yes and how we're our sunday sunday mornings or whenever your meetings like how are they oriented are they oriented in a way that right. in uh, allows people to sit and just be a spectator right. or does it invite people to take part yeah. in what God is doing? That's good. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, the misnomer Dave is that, uh, that church plants, you know, are starting from a, with a clean slate and that's not, hmm. that's not true. <laughs> right. yeah, um, yeah. Everybody comes in, even my church plant 10 years ago, people came in with a specific template already, already conditioned for how to engage faith and an right. institution, and so you're every all of us are exist are, are working with existing um, beta systems that people have um, around how right. to engage God and church and how to attend or not attend, and and so um, I have to do, I had to do a lot of deconstructive work even in my mm. first few years of starting from scratch. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in there, and I also I saw you tweeted something out to this extent as well but uh this idea of minimalism and it's important in the missional movement um are you are you talking about minimalism the way it's a trendy thing right now like <laughs> like we have to get rid of our stuff um like that is an important aspect of being on mission um is that trendy right now <laughs> i i don't know i mean i don't think doing it is <laughs> but i think talking about it sure. is you know? um but you know, I I've been talking about missional minimal, minimalism for the last you know ten fifteen years. Um, I mm. think within any uh, culture like the West, where we have excess and everything at our fingertips, um, there's just a natural tendency to just continue to pad it with more and more and more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. uh, like yeah. in 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 some of the some of the terms that kind of communicate this in code uh, within. Um, 
church is the word excellence. Everything has to be done with excellence. And I understand where that's, mm-hmm. I understand the word, but what it ultimately means on the ground is it needs to be better. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be the most talented. Um, and it just, mm-hmm. it just creates this um, trajectory of, of um, being a, of, of excess that we can't worship we can't follow Jesus. We can't live in community unless we have uh, everything that uh, would make us feel comfortable. And so for right. me to move towards mission, you actually have to wrestle with minimalism, um, huh. what it means to start pairing things back. I mean, minimal, minimalism yeah. in art, uh, uh, which which has been around for, for quite a while, was that art at some point uh, had become so cluttered and so... Um, so complex that you weren't able to actually see the beauty of what the artist had created. So minimalism art was this movement to start making simple palettes and, um, and, and allow white space to exist while there's also a piece of art mm-hmm. in the middle of that. And so that we can actually see the beauty of something. And I think that's what's happened in the church is we've lost the beauty of, of uh, the simplicity of Jesus, disciples on community in mission because it's been uh, so glutted up with so many extras. And so, um, I, for me, minimalism is about being able to see the beauty of um, the body of Christ. Um, hmm. So, uh, yeah. you know, there's that minimalism is a, requires specific choices and habits, um, but for everybody that looks differently. Minimalism, um, for me, yeah. might look different than you, but I don't think you can just add a missional, movemental way of being on top of what just on top of uh, the existing, you probably yeah. know this when it comes to like starting a new, you know, you, you feel conviction about doing something in, you know, on January 1st and you just can't add it into your life. Typically, if you do that, it falls away. You actually have to make space yeah. for it. Uh, and so that's right, really right. what mission minimalism is to me. It's like, it's, we've got to pare down in order to make space for, um, for following Jesus. So, yeah, that that's good stuff. I, our church, we do in June, we take uh, time off from like our normal Bible study and yeah. we do uh, what we call workshop Wednesdays. And so mm-hmm. I'm actually leading one. Uh, we just had the first class last night uh, cool. on the book, The Art of Neighboring. Yeah, uh, that's a great yeah. book. Yeah. So, and it kind of has that, you know, that missional feel and that missional heart at its Absolutely. core. Uh, yeah. And that kind of came up last night with some of the people that were there that, you know, I would love to live in a neighborhood where we were more close knit, where we knew each other better. You know, we would feel safer, but I'm so busy. Like what happens? And so I think at least in, so my wife is a, an interior designer. And so when we think about minimalism, we think about our stuff, Uh, Mm. but, and and that is a key part of minimalism, but your schedule matters too. And, exactly. Yeah. And if you're going to choose to live on mission, then you have to minimalize your schedule so that you have space for people to enter into that, you know? That's um, yeah. And that, that's a choice that you have to make and it's not always an easy one. Yeah. That's, that's, that's good. We, there's this, this practice that we use in V3 when st- people start facing when our planters start facing how cluttered their life is and that they actually don't have room to live on mission we use this this technique called the stop um and start technique and then step 
So what do you need to stop? What do you need to start? And what step do you need to take? These three S's. Mm. And yeah. it's really an auditing. It's, it's, it's getting them to clarify just one thing they need to stop or get rid of in order to make space for the thing that they want to start. And then what is the next step that you need to take? And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's amazing how just that simple practice um, is the first time people are actually thinking about what needs to, huh. to go and be cut out. Yeah. Because yeah. they actually, I mean, most of us are deep within have this, this desire for beauty and, to, and the art of neighboring. Neighboring is a beautiful, it, 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 it speaks to this inner longing for connectedness and for community and yeah. for cause but our lives are so glutted up, we can't even live into that beauty. And so yeah. um, it's really important to help people face how cluttered, um, how much the garage of their life is just filled up with so much. Hmm. We can't even park the car in there anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's good. Um, and definitely work that is a necessary work. It's not, and it's not a natural work either. Like, right. You know, our, our life does not default to evaluating <laughs> it, True. it, just adding and adding and, right. and then habits as well. That was one of the things that we talked about last night that like uh, 40 to 45% of the things you do on a daily basis are habit. Yes. And so we need to, what are our habits? We need to evaluate those. And then how can we start training ourselves to bring in new habits? And yes. then in the context that we're talking here, how can you bring in habits that allow you if not explicitly at least implicitly to be missional with right. the people god has placed around you right on that's good um so that's not what you're here to talk no, about. no that, so that's that's fun that, stuff man it's good that stuff. was bonus that was it's bonus important. content right there. yeah uh this good stuff thanks for for indulging me and in some of the thoughts that have been rolling around in my head uh on that so you wrote this book love over fear Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. And uh, typically, I'm drawn to books for one of two uh, seemingly opposing reasons. <laughs> Either I, I see the book and I'm like, okay, this is something that I already agree with. And like, this will just add to my arsenal so I can mm -hmm. tell people why I'm right and they need to think <laughs> like I do. Um, sure. Or, or at I'm least like, you're honest. Okay, <laughs> What's at that? least you're honest <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Uh, or i'll like see a book and i'm like i have no like that's gonna i know that's gonna challenge me right. and so you know i'll pick it up and I'll, I'll read it because i'm like i based on the premise of that book i don't think i agree so let me see if that's true and then i'll pick it up so this book your book was one that i was like yes like this is something that i'm already about and i'm gonna pick it up and I'm, then i can you know add to my arsenal. And what always happens with books like that is I read them and I, I go into it thinking of other people, right? This sure, is why sure. they need to read this book. And then as I read it, I'm like, Oh, there's work I have to do mm. here. <laughs> there are things that, you know, have been blind spots to me mm. that now I have to address. And so, um, that this book, I'm, I'm about halfway through it. I haven't actually finished it yet. That's right. Um, but it is, it's doing that work in me and making me realize some things that I have either ignored or excused away, mm. but some places where I've been choosing fear instead of love uh, and justifying mm. doing that. Wow. Um, that's cool. So thank you for, for the book. Dave, that's an encouragement. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if, um, 
as you chose to to write this book, if one of those two things uh, was at play in you, was this something hmm. that you were like, okay, I've wrestled through this, and so I want to share that journey, or was it like, okay, I, this is something I've always known, and everyone needs to know it, so I'm going to tell them. <laughs> Uh, you know, the book really does come out of um, a significant disruption in my life um, mm-hmm. where I lived uh, delusional about my ability to live into love. Um, you know, yeah. if you ask me if I was a loving person, um, I think, in, you know, I think in my conscience I thought I was. <clears throat> yeah, and yeah. in my theology, I, I ascribe to a God of love. But um, the more I began to live into it, I realized that I actually was quite controlled, conditioned by fear. Um, Mm. So the book comes out of, um, although it's not a memoir, I mean, it comes out of my own temper tantrum of uh, (laughs) moving from fear to love and and how hard it is and uh, how subconscious it is and how my theology Mm. contributes to that. And then... um, so it's just, it's just it, it comes from a deep personal place, and I tried my best to extrapolate it out in a way that it wasn't just uh, my persnickety issue, but right. something that was accessible in a way that everybody could find themselves um, in there. Yeah, so. yeah and, and I, I think you've done that, and you definitely, you know, you're honest, and you share personal stories and things that you've gone through, and, and some of those that, you know, maybe yeah, yeah. took some time to share, because you know, they're, they're honest, they're vulnerable and they might be things you'd rather no one know about (laughs) Uh, and that you can keep to yourself. But some of the stories, some of the stories that you touched on, uh, they deal with like implicit bias, like kind of these, these ideas that we have that we don't even know about, um, about other people. Right. And, um, how like are implicit, these implicit biases that we have, are they inherently wrong? Like why, how is it important to admit that we have, how important is it to admit that we have them and then to address them? That's a great question, Dave. Um, the, 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 um, the time that we're living in right now is that there's a lot of shame around acknowledging what you're afraid of. Um, mm. And so to start to tune into your implicit biases and your um, like I'd like to call it immediate judgments uh, that are internal. Yeah, yeah. We're afraid to actually say those out loud and confess that we have them because shame is heaped upon us. Um, mm. You know, at some point in my, I, I think it's chapter two or whatever, I share, uh, and this is hard to even, I mean, it's still hard for me to say out loud, but um, I was afraid of a, a, a black fella walking down the street. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, if I had ignored that, I would have um, just consistently um, lived into that judgment and then made choices based on that judgment rather than pulling it into mm. the light and unpacking it. Um, and I also, right. you know, I share in the book, I also had a significant reaction judgment towards a blue collar uh, grease monkey guy that was, you know, and yeah, I yeah. just looked at him as a, as a, as a, as a turd. <laughs> Like you're just a you're just a Trump voting jerk, right? Uh, that's my inner judgment speaking, and so th- we all have this, and this is we're all ashamed to admit it, but this is where we all live with these automatic judgments. We need to create space to um, 
to be able to confess and be honest without shame. And and this is uh, so the way that God doesn't move towards us with judgment; rather, He moves towards us with invitation and hospitality. Mm. We need to be moving towards each other this way, so that we can dismantle the uh, the controlling mechanism that fear has become in our life. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, fear is, and you know, I, you know this already, but. Um, our relationship with fear is probably the most important one in our life Hmm. because it also mirrors the way we relate with others. Fear is not just Hmm. this private interior issue. I mean, I've actually, I read um, 30 to 40 books on fear and most of them are very self-help. It's just very interior kind of dealing with the emotions you feel around fear. But so little of our understanding of fear is uh, deals with the implications of how it, affects the way we relate mm. with the very people around us yeah. um, and specifically people that are unlike us. Um, right. And so I, I think that uh, being able to have room to start acknowledging without feeling um, like you're unenlightened or ignorant to acknowledge that you have implicit bias and you have automatic judgments um, is the beginning of freedom Yeah, uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's good stuff. And I, for sure, I think, we need to, and maybe that's that even ties into missional community, or at least this idea of sure. community that you need a place where you can acknowledge these, right? Yes. Like to it's one thing to acknowledge it to yourself, and that certainly is where right. that needs to start. But sure. even acknowledging it yourself, you can keep that in, and you can continue yeah. to lean into those fears and those uh, implicit biases, and just continue to make decisions based on those instant judgments. Yes. But if you share with someone who uh, a spouse, a close friend, uh, someone from your church or someone who you can trust that, Hey, like I'm having this instant reaction often. And I don't think it's of God. I don't think it's of Christ. And to, to put that out there and then to be able to start to address it and to be aware that it's happening to plan yes. that this is going to happen, but I'm going to act, you know, counter to the way that I want to. Um, yes. You, you talk about uh, how our, we feel we can, we boil things down to either or yeah. and everything is either or. And, yeah. and ultimately the either or is attack or avoid um, yeah. kind of that fight or flight <clears throat> instinct. Yeah. But these are natural instincts. Yes. So why, like, why aren't they good? Why can't I just live <laughs> by fight or flight? Right. Well, I I like to say that fear is like fire, um, and fire is appropriate and enjoyable in a bonfire, mm. but fear in the forests of California destroys huh. everything. Yeah. Um, and fear is like that. It, it it there's a place for fear. If I face a bear in the woods. <laughs> Um, I need to either find a way to it, it to attack it and kill it, which is sad, or run for my life. Um, right. I don't really have too many options. I can't cuddle up to the bear. Um, but so there's an appropriate place for fear. But uh, what's happened is now we're seeing everybody that's unlike us or votes differently than us like a bear. Um, and so we our our brain. Um, I do some neur- neuroscience in the book, but. Um, our amygdala, which is the fear center of our brain, the primal part of our brain, really only has two options it gives us, and that's attack or avoid. And it only has one volume, and it's to scream. 
Mm. Um, and and this is natural to have this response in the face yeah. of something that's threatening, unfamiliar, or indicts us. Um, mm. The problem is that that's natural, but Jesus is calling us into something unnatural and potentially even mm. supernatural. Yeah. So when I talk about fear, I, I do often get the response that you know, fear. How can fear be? It's natural. It's 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 okay. It's true, <laughs> but it's it's it, God is calling us to live into our prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that is uh, responsible for empathy and active listening and forgiveness and kindness. Um, you, we we know this if if those for those who are married that if you live into your amygdala every time your wife or husband says something you don't like, you're going to be divorced <laughs> fairly quickly. Um, you yeah. can't just live into that nature. Um, so I think Jesus is, is doing two things, uh, is moving us out of this either or of, uh, it's bad or it's good, it's evil or it's, it's, it's righteous. It's, um, into a third way that's, that is unnatural, that is supernatural, that moves into the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And that third A that I like to use, um, rather than attack or avoid is the way of affection. Mm. And affection is uh, typically a term we only associate with the people that we really love the most. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you never say I have a f <laughs> affection for a stranger. That's just an odd right. thing in our culture. We we associate that with our kids. And um, but I'm 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 trying to help us awaken to the fact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, actually is calling us into affection with uh, the stranger, with the uh, the outcast, and and then particularly with the enemies in our life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, this is the only pathway, I think, to dismantle the uh, the war, um, the polarization war that we're in. It's, I think, yeah. the only pathway to actually make a, a serious dent in it. Yeah, yeah, and it's such important work, and um, so important right now in the time. I think it's always been important, right? Mm. Two thousand years ago, Jesus sure. showed up, yes. to start this. And to say, hey, like, you guys have been getting it wrong, so yeah. I had to come down to show you how to do it. Yeah. Um, so it's been important for thousands of years now. But yes. it does feel unique in the time that we're in, the setting that we're in in America, right. where things are so polarized. Yes. And, you know, I don't know. I know Trump gets blamed for a lot of it. Mm. I think this started before him. Yeah. I think he tapped into something that was already there. Right. And is using that for his advantage. Yes. Um, in, in my opinion, but, I agree. Um, but this is something that has existed for all of time and yeah. that we need to address. And, and even politically speaking, we are gearing up for another presidential election yeah. where fear on both sides is going to be the main tool yes. and we can be used. Right. And right be agents of that fear and to respond in fear yes. or we can and when we do that we attack the other side we attack the other yeah. um or we we withdraw and we avoid and then our voice is never going to be yes heard. yes or like you said this third way yeah. affection we can have affection for even our political enemy yeah. that we can see where they're coming from that we can give credence to the things that are true mm -hmm. that they're saying mm -hmm. and but then also in love and in affection challenge sure. them 
to see things as Jesus sees them. Yeah, David, you you mentioned how fear can be uh, by both sides will be used will be used by that fear, and that's their primary tool for um, what's to come. And yeah. um, I, I wrote a little bit in the book about this fascinating report called the Terror Management Report. And uh, in the 1980s, a group of psychologists um, developed a study because they were really curious about fear's influence on behavior, um, right. which is how can, can fear make people do things is really what they were curious about. And so they assembled yeah. this list of code words, hurt, danger, unsafe, peril, injure, threat, and they test them, tested them out in a series of studies on people. Um, and noticed, you know, 90% of the time these words are used, it incited immediate action in people. Hmm. And then they did the, the opposite with words like um, care and compassion and, um, um, and hope and realized that these words actually don't incite action. People don't respond automatically when they hear those words. Mm -hmm. And this terror management report, which was formed in the 80s, eventually became um, how hmm. it became the formal guide for how both right. the conservative, the, the Republican and Democratic Party write their political speeches. <laughs> they are, yeah. to this day, they're using that report. Um, you can do a little, even more research if you wanted to kind of verify that. But they're using this report and peppering their speeches with code words um, hmm. in order to incite response um, because uh, fear works. <laughs> it yeah. makes us yeah. respond. I like to say that sex intrigues, but fear, fear sells, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we have become lackeys uh, to uh, the 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 words of fear, the tone of fear, uh, the threats of fear. We've just s submitted to it as a culture, and my sadness, in uh, coupled with my work, is that uh, I think the church is just instead of resisting that, has just been imitating that. Um, that that yeah, that yeah. we've been being discipled by that, and so. Um, we we don't have imagination for any other way to respond to the culture war. We we think there's hmm. the only option we have is to respond to fear with like fear and attack it back or mm -hmm. avoid you said, which is to to silo away from people unlike us. And there's been some research mm -hmm. on siloing, which is, is that um, 72 percent of progressives only have progressive friends. This is Pew, the Pew Research hmm. Report, and then. Um, 78% yeah. of conservatives only have conservative friends. And this phenomenon of siloing is actually uh, is a new phenomenon in our culture. It, there's, it's, there's never been a time where we've been this, there's been this much of a chasm and a void between us relationally. Um, mm -hmm. So if fear yeah. thrives even more, there's distance between us. Um, I, yeah. I think that the, the, the greatest witness the church can have right now is to be rebellious and uh, disrupt that uh, polarization um, boxing ring we we have been forced into, um, hmm. and uh, it it really will take a um, a real sense of loyalty to the way of Jesus rather than our loyalty to the tribes that we political tribes we belong to. Hmm. Um, in in some of my discussion around this, I found that 
the the reason that people there's I think there's a growing desire to move out of these tribal, but yeah. the fear of even taking a step out of it um, is that con- for, to, as a conservative to move from out of your conservative tribe and start moving towards your enemies. Uh, your tribe is going to call you a compromiser. That you're compri- compromising mm-hmm. righteousness, you're compromising morality. You're, co- you know, there's there's very little yeah. wiggle room to to take a few steps away from your conservative tribe to start to start seeking empathy and affection and listening to your progressive brothers and yeah. sisters without being called someone that's compromising the truth as a progressive to do the same towards your conservative brothers and sisters, you are called complicit. (laughs) And, and this is the purity culture we're living in. Every, there is no space to not be called someone that's complicit or someone that's called a a compromiser. Um, And so most people uh, that have these inklings to move um, out of that tribal place, just end up sliding back into it because their tribal loyalties are stronger than their loyalty to the way of Christ. Um, right. So my my hope is that there are some heroes and there are some rebels and radicals that choose to um, be okay with being called a compromiser or complicit in order to make a third way. Yeah, and my hope is the same. And really, a lot of that is even what I'm hoping to accomplish with like this podcast is to, to give yeah. voice to people who disagree with me or yes. uh, with mm. the church or with whatever. Um, and just yes. to introduce people to new ideas and safe env- environments that like, it's okay to engage with this idea that, you know, you grew up being told was wrong or evil or yes. whatever. Um, I remember right. in college, and my mom listens to this podcast, so uh, forgive me for telling <laughs> the story, mom. But uh, in college, I was reading a book, um, The Lost World of Genesis 1 uh, by John Walton. Oh, and yeah. uh, yep. he does not uh, necessarily put forth that uh, that the world was created through an evolutionary process, but certainly opens the door for that. And uh, so I was reading that in college. I went to a Christian college, Cairn University. And uh, so I'm reading that for a class and I, I come home for a weekend or whatever. And my mom's like, oh, what's that? And I tell her, she's like, why are you reading that at a Christian college? And um, there's that idea that like this, this even thought, like you can't engage with yeah. that because it's bad and right. it will do something to you. But if we truly have the spirit of truth in us then we can engage with people who have what we think are false ideas and if they are wrong then that's okay we have the spirit of truth but we might find out that we've been deceived that we're the one who are wrong and that they've been right and the spirit of truth that is in us will illuminate that for us and there's this it goes back to fear that we choose fear that I can't engage with ideas right. that are outside of my tribe because right. of whatever, either it will contaminate me or right. they might actually be right. And then I'll be ostracized from my tribe. Right. Um, but yeah. as you said, we need, you know, those heroes, those people with courage and bravery to step out and to stand boldly in the middle and say, you know, I'm yeah, here to, yeah. to hear you. And that doesn't mean, you know, we don't yeah. have to compromise on truth. We don't have to, but right. we can engage in love and in, in affection. Yes. 
You know, that story is so is uh, is so uh, true and so common, actually. That, and when you unpack people's um, history, they've had those moments where their curiosity um, has been, um, you know, no, we love you, Mom. <laughs> but, um, their curiosity has been stifled or uh, stamped out and um, because of fear that there's some slippery slope um, yeah. that, will lead us down into danger. And I, I honestly think that that's what's happening around the, the orbit around Jesus. Um, why, uh, there's so many labels put on Jesus, uh, that he's a glutton, that he's a drunkard, Mm -hmm. that he's a sinner. Uh, these are labels put on him by the crowds and the Pharisees around him because of his proximus relationship with people Mm -hmm. unlike him. Um, and this is what happens when we move out of our silo or our tribe and we begin to befriend, you know, the language I use in the book is monsters, but people that we're, we are, are told are monsters or right. told are frightening or could gobble us up, whether it's a truth or it's a person, um, Jesus befriended those people and he was given those associations. Well, because he hangs out with people, he must be a drunkard. He must be, sl- right. he must be sloshed all the time. Yeah. Um, I found that to be true um, in my own life, that the more I move towards people that are, um, the more befriending I do of people unlike me, the more labels are put upon me that, hmm. that are false. Um, yeah. And our, our culture now, I mean, just fast forward 2,000 years, and our culture loves categorization. It loves to categorize yeah. who you are and who you belong to. And, um, and these, these categorizations um, are shutting down relationship ultimately what's Mm -hmm. happening and they're a way to control um uh our association with people and so i I say this a little bit in the book that um that the 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 word the categorization is actually the work of yeah i love yeah uh categorization is really uh the work of satan and i actually believe in a real satan so but in revelation 12 uh satan is called the accuser um and the Greek word for accuser is category. Um, and this is where we get the language of category. Um, yeah. So what's actually going on in the work of the enemy is that he's categorizing and dividing and ranking and filing us and fueling animosity between us by putting us into these categories in um, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, master. These are all categorizations that are the work of the enemy. And typically these people do not associate with one another and then certainly do not uh, engage in table fellowship. Um, and this yeah, is, to yeah. me, that's the work of the enemy is to, to give us the, to tell us we have the authority and the power to categorize each other. Um, and right. that is the seat of judgment that Jesus is actually trying to dismantle in his disciples when he says, you know, you judge others while you have a plank in your eye and you see, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you see a plank in someone else's eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, take out, you, you see the, the dust in someone else's eye but have a plank in your eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> plank in your eye, yeah. And this is what that, this is us being able, wanting to have the authority to, to, uh, to, um, delineate who is good and who is evil who is in and who is out who is the us yeah. who is the them who is and this is all the categories this is the powers and mm. principalities at work um this doesn't this doesn't betray the fact that we can right. hold an opinion 
I can hold an opinion uh, that I think is truthful. It's not. It's not about what I believe. The problem right yeah. now is how we yeah. hold our beliefs. Um, our posture is one of judgment and uh, shaming, and ranking and mm-hmm. categorizing each other. Um, so I can sit. I can sit at the table with someone I disagree with and be looking for the very moment to tell them that they are wrong, and that they are ignorant or unenlightened or they're a heretic or they're the oppressor. I can. I just can be waiting for that that little crack in the conversation to to do that, or I can be sitting at the table with compassionate curiosity and be seeing the image of God in them rather than seeing um, yeah. them as a monster. Uh, so in both scenarios, I hold truth. Right, right. I hold an opinion, but my posture yeah. is different. And and we're right now being shaped uh, by cable news and by our social media feeds to hold truth with, with a very hmm. specific posture. Yeah. Um, so this is a long-winded <laughs> kind of tirade on, on just on just what's happening right now around this categorization and the yeah. way that we hold truth. I, I loved um, that that idea of categorizing and that the accuser is really the categorizer. Like, isn't that what we're yes. doing when we categorize? Right? Is we are accusing you of being a liberal or being a conservative? Yeah, they're just. They're just titles, right? They seem innocent enough, but they're, it's code language, like you had said before. Like We know yes. that those words are heaped with meaning depending on the context that right. we're in. And so, you know, if I know that you're a liberal, I know everything I need to know about you. If I know you're a conservative, right, I know right. everything I need to know. And now my curiosity is gone. And uh, you, I won't read the, the quote, but you had a, a Henry Nowen quote. Um, that talked about moving beyond certainty. And that really hit me too, because that's so much of what our polarization is, is certainty in these categories that you, because you are this, I am certain about who you are at the core because of this one thing that I know. And when we are certain, we're not curious. Right. And so we need to move beyond certainty that I can be solid in what I believe to be true, but I want to be curious about why you believe what you believe rather than certain that, oh, you're a bad person because of this or because of that. But instead, I'm curious as to how you could be a decent person and disagree with me on this thing, you know, and so move beyond this idea of certainty to embrace mystery, to uh, be able to entertain yes. competing ideas, uh, engage yeah. with nuanced ideas, nuanced ideas yes. rather than just putting everything in its category, but be able to yeah. unpack it and to be able to look for truth in things, even in things that we disagree with. Um, yeah. And I love too that when you, because I think we can justify all of our fear and justify our polarization. And I love that you touched on, you know, not all of our fears are based in, uh, some are based in reality. Like there are actual sure. reasons to be afraid because of your past yes. experiences, yes. because of things that have happened to you. We don't need right. to just. We're, we're not saying that all fear is irrational. Some of it is based in reality. Right. But Exactly. But like you said before, even if that fear is natural and is for a good cause, 
Jesus is calling us to something more, to something supernatural and to love anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm surrounded by a lot of therapists in my, in my life right now. I've got some great friends that are clinical therapists and, um, they do a lot of work with people who are, um, controlled by fear, who have significant trauma in their life and their, their, their work, um, in, helping people that are traumatized is not just to tell them uh, it's okay to be afraid. Mm. That's part of the process right. to create sa- to create safety and to affirm those fears. But if people want healing, they want transformation, mm-hmm. then they have to start listening to new voices. Mm. Um, and this is, this is, this is what's happening in therapy is how do you help people listen to new, right. uh, new, pathways in their brain, new, new, uh, really new voices other than the, the loudest, most, uh, controlling voice that you are not safe. Yeah. You will be hurt. Um, no one understands you, uh, move into self-protection. That's, that's one voice. Mm -hmm. And that voice comes out of genuine and honest trauma. Right. Um, I mean, I've got some trauma in my life and, 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 I'm living in this tension consistently with it of wanting to just live in safety mm. or be stretched towards uh, healing in my life. Yeah. And because I want to re-engage in a healthy way rather than being um, stuck in a ditch. Yeah. And um, Carl, Carl Jung, psychologist, you're, you've, people are familiar yeah, with yeah. him, um, talks a lot about uh, this, this psychology of fear in that um, – and how it affects polarization. And he, he's got some, he's got, he's got some really indicting words around it, but says that when we, when we slide into these either or um, ways of relating with each other, um, not being able to embrace tension and nuance, um, it's actually emotional regression. Hmm. He says that we are actually becoming infants Mm -hmm. rather than adults. Yeah. And so in our culture, a lot of people think that polarization is a necessary evil. Um, and Carl Jung is saying, no, that's actually us becoming infantile. Mm. Um, we're becoming like our like children who can't who can't uh, engage. You know, we've seen this if you have kids, but I've seen this in my sons. They don't when you take a toy away from them to help them share with somebody else. They see that as someone is stealing their toy, right, and they're never right. gonna—they're never gonna get it back. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. they're living in this either-or uh, framework. Yeah. Um, I think our culture is living that way now. Yeah. That to to sit at the table with my enemy and begin to listen to them and seek understanding and find points of common virtue and ethics. Mm. Yeah, looks like uh, we we can't do that because we're we're, we're regressing emotionally, yeah. and so. Um, there's just so there's so much science and psychology and theology that that is is pointing us in this peculiar direction yeah. of moving towards our enemy uh, with um, a different set of muscles rather yeah. than just attack or avoid. Yeah, I I appreciated that even though it was a little bit of a shot to my ego um, that <laughs> that we are childish that we are yeah, returning yeah. back to childish ways when we do that and as you talked about that in the book i i was reminded of uh, the story of a friend of mine uh, he we were probably 12 13 or whatever and he had a, a younger sister who was like 2 or 3 and uh, sh- 
as the lawnmower goes by my window. <laughs> uh, so she was she was pretty young, and she had a cousin whose name was Dave, and so she refused to believe that my name was Dave because there was already a Dave in her life. She couldn't yeah. she couldn't hold that there were two Daves, and so right. I, I was thinking about that and like. In so many ways, we do that. That yes, well, yes. I'm right, and I'm good, and I'm righteous. I'm on the right side of history. So how there can't be any good in you because there's right. already I have the good, and yes. we can't, we can't, we don't have the imagination to say, oh, okay, like you can be good as well. We can disagree without you being a monster, without you being evil, or yes, whatever category we want to put someone in um, yes but that's really that's really well said i i just wrote that down dave i have the good so you can't have hmm. any good yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. and that's really what's going on is yeah. uh that's great yeah uh well thanks dan for for coming on thanks for um writing this book for being honest for being open about uh, your experiences and your your battles with fear and uh, mm. continual battle to choose love over fear. I mean, yeah. if people want to check out this book, where's the, the best place that they can get it? Uh, there's a website called loveoverfearproject.com, loveoverfearproject.com. And that website is loaded with, uh, there's actually a free discipleship manual in there yeah. for this book. There's, there's actually artists that have written original music for oh, cool. uh, the book to express their, their engagement with it. And then you can actually buy the book there, but awesome. Cool. And uh, if people want to follow you, where where can they do that? Uh, Dan White Jr. Uh, that's a Twitter handle there. Okay. At Dan White Jr. is the best awesome. place. All right. Sweet. Well, thanks for your time, Dan, and thanks for your work. I appreciate it. David, it was a joy. Thanks so much. Thanks.